From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Phones are quiet at the Colorado Child Abuse Hotline, but that's not necessarily a good thing. What we believe is that there may be fewer eyes on kids. Kids are experiencing that abuse and neglect and now are isolated. Then are there ways to make sleepaway camps safe enough to happen this summer in Colorado? Some camp directors say no. The way we felt we could mitigate it the best was just to not have it this summer. Others plan to open with some changes. I think that the mental health parts of this are pulling us as well. So we're really looking at this adapt and proceed right now, and we feel like can provide a healthy experience. Then a rancher in Baca County opens a window into how the pandemic has affected his everyday life. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Calls to Colorado's child abuse hotline have dropped dramatically in the last few months, and state experts say that's not a good thing. We don't believe that this is because there are fewer kids experiencing abuse and neglect. Mina Castillo-Cohen heads the Office of Children, Youth, and Families at Colorado Department of Human Services and thinks it has everything to do with COVID-19. What we believe is is there may be fewer eyes on kids. Kids are experiencing that abuse and neglect and now are isolated. With much of the state closed for businesses, teachers, child care workers, and doctors aren't seeing children or incidents of abuse, so they're not calling in. She says it's even more critical for community members to be on the lookout for potential cases of abuse and neglect. At the same time, the closures around COVID-19 have meant people who treat child abuse cases have had to transform the way they interact with children and families. Here to talk about that is Amy Beery. She's a social worker at Savio, a nonprofit based in Denver. Hi, Amy. Hi, good morning. During this period where the state has essentially been shut down, it's harder for you and other groups to find out which families need help. What's your sense of what's been happening to families, especially those prone to violence, that aren't being reached? Well, I I think it's important to remember home isn't a safe place for everyone. Um, and families are experiencing a lot more pressures than they have historically in terms of financial pressures, um, transportation, accessing basic needs, all of those things have just become more difficult um, since COVID-19. I worry a lot about the families that aren't getting connected to the resources and support that they normally would get connected to if calls are being made to the hotline. And is there any evidence that child abuse goes up during times when school is out and everyone is home? I think when you have families that are restricted in their daily activities and are experiencing increased stressors, that's always a concern and a risk that child abuse and domestic violence incidence rates can increase. And who are some of the people who might normally report child abuse that aren't seeing kids right now? So we rely heavily on teachers, daycare workers, um, the medical community um, to to be that first line of defense, to notice when things start to not seem right versus when it gets to a situation where law enforcement is the first one to, to, um, to respond to abuse or neglect. Um, I think what I've heard anecdotally is we're seeing cases more severe um, that are when they finally get called in versus earlier on when um, we may be able to intervene and prevent uh, more severe incidences of abuse and neglect. 
Now, you have done a complete 180 in your services. Since the pandemic began earlier this year, you've been doing a lot more telehealth with families where there has been abuse. What aren't you able to see with the telehealth visit that you might see if you visited the family's home? Sure. Um, we're doing the best we can with the resources we have to keep everybody safe and healthy. Um, we're, when we're doing a telehealth session to assess safety in the home, we're really limited by the view of the camera, and we're relying on the caregivers on the home to show us everything um, versus being in person where you can get a much fuller picture, you can smell the environment, you can um, observe other things that may be happening that don't come through as well via audio or video on the telehealth um, so it's, it's a challenge, um, and we are pairing that with some in-person visits, but outdoors at least six feet away from kids just to leave, lay eyes on them um, and see if there's anything else we can observe in person while maintaining those social distance requirements. I imagine that's important because it's hard to see if, say, a child is bruised if you're not with them in person. Right, exactly. Um, you know, video can be deceiving, shadows, um, you know, lighting, all of those things can be um, challenging in uh, assessing that environment versus being there in person. Is there anything that you get from telehealth visits that you can't get from in-home visits? Um, I think for some of our families, it's easier to engage via video. Um, it's less um, less intimidating and I think especially for some of our adolescents, it's easier because that's how they're used to communicating with their friends. Um, so there, it's not all bad news. Um, I think for some families, it's a, a form of receiving services that eliminates barriers around transportation and childcare, um, and definitely um, is valuable as a valuable tool. And are there clues that you look for when you're communicating with a family over a screen? Sure. Um, we're trying to pay attention to the background, the environment, how they're engaging or not engaging with the kids. Um, if we can hear a baby crying for an extended period of time, we'll encourage the caregiver to go tend to the child. Um, things we would normally do in person, I think we just have to work a little harder um, at observe, making those observations via screen. And how will the pandemic change how you work in the future? That's a great question. Um, you know, we are an organization that does primarily in-home services. So it's, um, you know, we definitely are not abandoning that as our service model. Um, but I think there are going to be, you know, modifications we're going to have to make for a long time to ensure our staff and our families stay safe and healthy. I think telehealth is here to stay um, in some form or fashion. Um, and, um you know, I'm grateful we've had the ability to use technology to remain connected to our families and to our to each other as a team. And I wonder if it's possible that amidst all that you're seeing, the places like yours could also be hit financially by the widespread economic problems the country is facing. Sure, that's entirely possible. Um, but we are working hard to advocate that the services we provide are essential services for families and um, cutting those services is not in the best interest of the community. And we heard from the head of Colorado's Office of Children, Youth, and Families that community members need to be look out, be on the lookout for potential cases of abuse and neglect. How can communities look out for kids in this way? Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, it's you know for time for friends, family, and neighbors to shine and help keep an eye on kids and support parents who are struggling. Um, you know, I think the important thing to remember about calling the hotline is it can be a little intimidating if it's not something you're used to doing as a part of your job. 
Um, you can remain anonymous, which is um, important to know. And you don't have to be 100% certain about what's happening in a family um, or to a child. Just reporting a concern is enough. Um, and let the Department of Human Services take it from there in terms of next steps and being able to reach out to the family and offer resources and support, which is their, their first um, strategy in um, helping keep kids safe. And I wonder what sort of things of concern might people call into the hotline? Um, I think, you know, concerns can be really varied. I think, you know, some things that neighbors sometimes notice is if a parent seems to be yelling um, more often, um, if kids are crying for extended periods of time, if they haven't seen a child that they normally see for a long time and it seems unusual. I know that's maybe hard to judge right now, but um, if you've noticed, you know, a child hasn't been outside and they're usually outside and it's been several days, um, that might be a concern. Um, certainly if, you know, kids in the neighborhood are, kids tend to talk about things that are happening. Um, so if a child talks to you about being harmed or feeling like they don't get enough food or, um, things are happening in their home that worry you, go ahead and make that call. And, um, and, you know, like I said, you may be one of several people that's called in and they put that information together um, to formulate a better picture of what may be happening. So you might have one piece of information um, that really helps the department figure out next steps. So it really sounds like neighbors are more important now than ever since folks are at home more. Absolutely, yes. Um, and we've got about a minute left. How much does economic stress have an effect on the way parents treat kids? You know, I think that is a, a major stressor um, for families that are experiencing the financial insecurity or food insecurity. Um, parents want to provide for their families and their kids, and not knowing if you're going to be evicted or where your next meal is coming from pushes people to their limits of coping skills. And they may also start using substances more often than they may have in the past. And so, um, you know, not all those coping skills are healthy or result in safety in the home. So, all of those factors, um, really that pressure on families is, um, is very concerning. And so you know, it's important that the community works together to help relieve that stress in as many ways as we can. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Amy Beery is the Child Protection Program Coordinator at Savio, a nonprofit in Denver, Colorado, with branches in Colorado Springs and Canyon City. Savio provides therapy for children and families. We've been talking about how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected child abuse treatment. The state's child abuse hotline is one 844 co 4 kids That's one 844 co 4 kids We're headed into Memorial Day weekend, and the fate of summer camps is still unclear. Some will be closed, Denver Zoo camps, for example. Others, like many YMCA camps, hope to be open and are waiting for state guidance, which the governor says is coming Monday. Bringing kids together in the face of COVID-19 is tricky, and that's doubly true at sleepaway camps. So to help families sort through the issues, we've asked two overnight camp directors to share their thinking. Tommy Fellman runs Camp Granite Lake in Golden, which has announced it will be closed this summer. Jeff Cheeley runs Cheeley, Colorado camps in Estes Park, which hopes to open. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Hello. Jeff, you still hope to open this summer, even if it's a bit delayed. The governor has promised guidelines on Monday. Are you hearing anything about what he'll say? 
We are not. It's uh, like the last two months have been. It's been a kind of an emotional roller coaster. I'll hear some good news and bad news, um, and we really have have no idea uh, exactly what may come out. And if you're allowed to open, what will be the hardest thing, do you think, to achieve? Gosh, I think there's going to be a lot of different things. I think children coming um, to camp have been through a challenging time the last two months. Even for children to restart in social settings could be challenging. So we've talked about how we're going to deal with just the, the mental health aspects of that, modifying our program, communicating to our campers that the, the summer of 2020 is going to be very different than the summer of 2019. Uh, no matter what happens. So showing up to camp thinking it's going to be just like it was last year would set us up for some letdowns. No giant dance parties or anything like that. Correct. Yep. What about the number of children allowed to go to camp in general? Would you like to see fewer children to help with the social distancing challenges? You know that the American Camp Association created some guidelines, and one of the cornerstones of this guidelines are these this idea of concentric circles or cohorts. And so starting in smaller cohorts, 10 to to 15 to 20 campers, almost like a home unit, those campers would stay together. And so you're you're limiting your your uh, exposure. So smaller cohorts of students at the camp. So if your students interacting with each other, what are some of the other specific changes that you might make to make it more safe? Well, and to clarify that, there may be similar numbers, but they're going to be more spread out and they're not going to be mixing as much. So the, the main thought on that is that if, if a camper does test positive, that you've exposed 15 campers, 10 campers, uh, a smaller group rather than, than the entire uh, population. So, you know, other things that are going to be different, I mean, dining room procedures are going to need to look very different. Um, an increase in medical staff. So you do have experts at camp that can support if you do have some campers that are that are tested positive. Now, Tommy Feldman of Camp Granite Lake, you announced at the end of March that you would not open this summer. Why is that? Well, I have family that are working in the hospital, and they said to me in late February, actually three months ago now, you know, camp might not run this summer. And I thought they were crazy. Um, At the end of February, we started communicating with our families and um, schools, you know, closed mid-March. And we've always just been looking at this through a healthcare and medical lens. And, you know, there were were three truths that we we decided we were going to stick with. And one was that kids really need camp. And boy, do they need it more than ever. As Jeff was saying, they just need to get outside. They need to connect with other people and staff. Uh, The second truth is that we looked at the way we run program and that we couldn't create the kind of bubble that we would have to um, beginning before the campers arrived and and long after they went home that could keep them, uh, we could guarantee their health and safety and the health and safety of their family that they're returning to. And then the the third piece was that the third truth is that uh, from a business standpoint, we're, we are a smaller business. We have been around for just, uh, this is our 10th summer of resident camp. We looked at it and said, you know, if there was a disruption in the middle of the summer because of uh, an outbreak of the disease or just because of changes that we couldn't anticipate, we probably wouldn't be able to open again in 2021 into the future. So those three things uh, really led us to our decision that we announced on April 20th. So when you say you're, you would worry that a kid would be healthy at camp and then go home, it sounds like you're worried that they might be sick after the camp. You know, we, we don't want anybody to get sick. So 
um, you know, our, our choice, the way we felt we could mitigate it the best was just to not have it this summer. Jeff, tell me a little bit more about why you feel it's important to keep camps open and why not play it safe. Uh, we've, we've always looked at ourselves as partners in the, in the parenting process and the kind of bringing children uh, along. And I mean, it's, it's difficult. I, I heard a story the other day that a, a friend shared that her son was outside crying three, four weeks ago, and she walked out and said, what's going on? And he said, I just, I miss my friends. And so I think that the mental health parts of this are, are pulling us just looking at the whole child. You know, I think each, each family, I think one of the main messages right now is that, you know, this is a family decision and it's a unique family decision. It's going to be different for each person. What will you do if someone gets COVID-19? Will parents be able to get their child home safely? That's a great question. We would, right now, we're telling our parents, yeah, if someone tests positive, we would want the family to come pick them up. Uh, We're, we run a, we usually run a four-week program. We did reduce that to a three-week program just to buy us a little bit more time for some of the regulations and the news that's coming out. Uh, And so, you know, they're recommending a 10 to 14 day quarantine if you do test positive and with camp being uh, 19, 20 days long, if it's on day four, it doesn't make sense. And we're not really set up to quarantine an individual that, uh, that comes down with it. It's interesting to me that you both thought a lot about camp this summer and how it could impact school in the fall. Tommy, tell me about how that thinking led you to cancel camp. It was it was connected to just looking at the overall picture of um, what's going to go on with kids. I have a couple of kids here at home, and I look at them and say, I want to do everything I can to get them back in school. And, you know, when we made the decision to close, that that is one of the things that we just want schools to have uh, healthy kids as they as they can. And Jeff, of course, you also worry about school. I understand you're influenced by your experience with the H1N1 flu outbreak in 2009. Tell us about that. Well, camps dealt with that before schools did. Um, We did have some cases that summer. I think one thing that's very different um, is that we're going into this summer knowing that this is on the horizon that summer. Um, you know, you, we do certain things to, um, to protect against that, but we're going into this summer with a lot more protocols in place and a lot more focus on washing hands and cleanliness. So we did deal with some cases back in 09 and the County health department came back to us either later that year or the next, uh, summer and said, you guys did an amazing job of navigating that. And some of the procedures you used and some of the issues that you dealt with helped, uh, schools navigate those challenges in the fall. So, Avery, if I can say, um, one of the interesting things in this conversation is, you know, we have two camp directors who have two different opinions, but this is not a proxy for the kind of arguments you're seeing sort of out in the public of Democrat versus Republican or stay open or, you know, close or stay open, you know, the, the societies and the businesses and all that. It, it's the community of camp directors and the people who work with kids, um, we agree that each of us looks at and assesses the situation and makes decisions that's best for their families and their businesses and promotes that. And I, I'm feeling, you know, whatever camp directors decide 
that's their decision and they're going to work with their families and we're going to work with our families. And it's not a uh, part of this sort of bigger battle that we're seeing in, in the world. I appreciate us. that clarification. Cause I know that I think that's something I'm facing so much as businesses begin to open up in different ways is everybody's having to make their own choices, whether it's about camp or when to go to the grocery store or to the restaurants or what hanging out with friends look like. What, so I, I appreciate that. I think that these are choices we're all having to make on some level. And I, I, I understand every single decision that Jeff is making because I have had to go through the process too. And I understand how much all of us who are working with kids and opening restaurants or whatever it is are trying to make really black and white decisions in a in an area that's gray. When I when we decided late March to close and then announced in April, late April, to tell everybody that the world was really gray. And I thought like, oh, it's gonna get less gray. It's gonna become more black and white as time goes on. And the reality is that's actually the opposite of what's happened is we're all just trying to make these really black and white decisions in a in a space that's getting grayer and grayer. And it's happening with the schools, it's happening with the businesses, and it's happening with the summer camps. And so I, I get it. I get uh, that parents now are faced with making a black and white decision in a gray space. And I, I feel for them, and I invite them to talk with their camp directors, to talk with the people who are providing their child care, and just make the best decisions they can, because that's what we're all trying to do. Right. Navigating in this gray space is, in some ways, brings in new stressors that having black and white guidelines didn't. Tommy, I wonder, as you're considering these gray areas, are you thinking about other programs at Camp Granite Lake? Yeah, so we have we have made the pivot to some new programs. We are doing some drive-in movie type things for our camp families. We've got some family activities starting up later in June that are socially distanced um, things like ceramics and waterfront stuff and archery where families can come and experience it together. And then if things open up and really start to turn the way we hope they do uh, as the summer progresses, we're looking at family camps in August. And if things are going well in the fall, we would love to have campers come up in smaller groups and experience a weekend of camp you know, throughout the fall and just get to recapture that in preparation for 2021. And Jeff, Chile Camps will celebrate its 100th summer this year. The Great Depression, a world war, polio. Have you ever had to close before? Uh, we never have closed. We've faced challenging times. We've had to evacuate uh, in the past. But no, we this was not this was not in our planning for how to celebrate our 100th summer. Was to face one of the the biggest challenges that we've had to face. So I think we can safely say that. A pandemic was not in any of our plans for 2020. <laughs> well, Tommy and Jeff, thank you so much for joining me and sharing how you're thinking about navigating this. Thank you so much. Tommy Feldman runs Camp Granite Lake in Golden. Jeff Chile runs Chile, Colorado camps in Estes Park. After the break, ranching during the pandemic. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I support Colorado Public Radio because I think accurate objective information, especially during these trying times, is more important than ever. Thanks for what you do. Thank you to Colorado Public Radio's community of support, your ongoing commitment to supporting CPR and your donations during the recent membership drive are keeping CPR strong. Thank you for making an impact for giving for those who can't, and thank you for making the spring drive a success.
Throughout the pandemic, we've been sharing stories about how it's affecting different people in different ways. All Told, a podcast from The Washington Post, uses recorded audio diaries to capture this moment in time. The most recent episode focuses on Terry Swanson. He's a Colorado farmer and rancher in Baca County in the dry southeastern corner of the state. Terry joins us now from his ranch. Hi, Terry. Hi, how are you this morning? Doing well, thanks. And Bishop Sand is the audio producer of the All Told podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Bishop, for this podcast, you ask people to spend a week sharing a lot of themselves, journaling for 15 minutes a day. How has that process shaped the stories in All Told? Well, that process is, is, is this really immersive view inside of someone's life, um, Typically, people record uh, two or three recordings a day over a course of a week, and these recordings are about a minute long. Um, but Terry was able to send me five, six, uh, sometimes nine recordings um, throughout the day uh, over the course of a week. So you you get this really nice sort of spread of what he's up to during the day, and start these sorts of uh, themes start to come out. Um, for Terry, it was kind of like, very obvious that he was very resilient and you saw that he was being as productive, productive as it could be. And there's this change in the cattle industry that was kind of imminent. And you've spoken with an NBA basketball player, a jazz guitarist in New Orleans, a Boston minister. Why did you want to add somebody from the rural West to that mix? Well, because I think that this event right now, this historic event, which is this pandemic we're going through, is affecting everybody. I mean, everybody is feeling it. Um, so I wanted to hear as many perspectives as possible. And so these perspectives that we were hearing were mostly kind of uh, urban. I mean, they're in New York, they're in D.C., they're in Boston. And I wanted, I purposely wanted to find someone in the rural setting to hear what they had to say. And I also found that these people that we're talking to, they, they I wanted to have them connect to people and events in the news. And recently, in mid-April, there was this outbreak of COVID-19 uh, in meat processing plants. So I was thinking there could be somebody I could find in the meat supply line, maybe a rancher uh, in this rural setting. And I called around and found Terry, who has this great, deep knowledge of the industry that seemed to be changing, and he was active in it and respected in it, and meeting with presidents and uh, ag sec- secretaries. And Terry, your family has been working the land in Baca County for a century. That area is no stranger to hard times. It's dealt with some of the worst effects of the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression. Still, I'm sure it can seem removed from the wider world. At what point did you realize the coronavirus pandemic would actually personally affect you? I was at a commodity classic in San Antonio with uh, national sorghum producers when they did a special there, and that was in about the 29th of February, maybe the 1st of March, and uh, uh, at that point, everybody thought that, as as a lot of people did, this whole situation was just blown out of, out of proportion, and uh, pretty soon we'll get this behind us, and on the way home and listening to the radio from San Antonio and visiting with my brother in, in Austin, you know, it kind of realization this is a real deal. And we're going to play a section from the podcast now. In this, Terry, you're speaking with fellow rancher John Campbell and talking about how the country's big four meatpacking companies are selling beef at higher prices during the pandemic while paying ranchers like you less. Let's listen. I don't know that there'll be any big push 
to break up a, a, a food monopoly that, yeah. that's feeding the, the masses. Yeah. I don't think they want to mess with that. No, no. And, 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 and that's what needs to happen in order to get a competitive environment back, uh, back going so, so we can get price discovery, so we can have negotiated sales, just like we do here at the auction. That keeps the business healthy. But when you've got one sector of the business that, that, that controls the entire deal, but we take all these independent feeders out, it just goes right along the deal and we'll have corporate America feeding them all, just like they do in the hogs and the, and the chickens, yeah. and everybody goes by the wayside. I hope it doesn't happen. Well, That's I do too, and I just watched a, a PBS documentary on Teddy Roosevelt. And we just need a Teddy Roosevelt. Boy, you, know, you ain't a kid. In the worst way. In, in the worst way. You know, somebody that can actually has the, the courage. And maybe it's it's a different time and maybe it takes a different kind of courage to do that. And I'm not smart enough to figure it out. But somebody that's got the courage to say, you know, things are broke. Let's fix them. So obviously a lot has changed since February and we're just kind of getting a sense of what was happening. Terry, can you tell us more about what you think is broken in the beef industry right now? Well, I think it's not just the beef industry. I think it's across America as a, as a whole because we have so many huge consolidated industries, and the, the food industry is one of them. Uh, we went from a mom-and-pop grocery store to we buy our stuff at Costco or, or Walmart and uh, mega stores. Uh, Kroger owns a great portion of the, the grocery stores in the United States, and so... What we are is a victim of our own success in a way because we're efficiently feeding the masses very, very uh, efficiently and and inexpensively. But there's some uh, inherent risk in that, and COVID uh, showed us that uh, in spades, where it uh, attacks some consolidated industries and then then, uh, uh, everybody uh, suffers the consequences. Now, Baca County, where you live, has only had about a dozen positive coronavirus cases so far. Yet the virus is, of course, still a- impacting everyone's lives. Let's listen to another section from the podcast. The three grandchildren are having to homeschool now, and they've got about three weeks left before they t- turn them loose. But I ask them how it's going, and it kind of depends on which one of them you ask, you know. Your dirt bike? Yeah. Have you been riding it a lot since we've had the virus thing? I guess. You guess? Yeah. So more than you would otherwise? Yeah. And how's school going? Horrible. Horrible? Yeah. Why? I haven't got any of it done. Huh? I haven't got any of it done. <laughs> you haven't got any of it done? Yeah. Too much dirt bike riding? He's really smart kids, and they do well in school, but he doesn't like homework very well, so he'd rather not ride his dirt bike. So we helped him work on his dirt bike track. He's got a dirt bike track out behind his house. <clears throat> so Grandpa took some his skid steer and a bucket and built him some new jumping ramps and things like that. So we made about everybody a little bit happier today, which that always makes you feel good. That's a great picture of life right now. Terry, how are you and your family doing? Oh, we're doing quite well. Uh, there's a, a huge difference between rural America and urban America when it comes to the day-to-day uh, coping with COVID. Uh, 
obviously, when we go to the grocery store, we wear our masks, and everybody is respecting the social distancing, even in a little old community like this. That we know the 12 people that that uh, were affected, and that they're all over it now, and and uh, uh, back into society. But even uh, with that, uh, we have a, a major highway runs through our community, 287, and that would be a vector for for diseases, and so. Most everybody is respecting that very well, but on a day-to-day basis, uh, on a farm or a livestock operation, uh, you see the same three to six people every day, and so things are just much, much different, you know. And we just uh, keep doing what we do, what we do, and and uh, go on from there. Now, Bishop, while Terry may be one of the most geographically isolated people you've spoken to, I understand. His life has actually remained one of the more socially active people that you've profiled, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty incredible. Um, the only other person I found that was a little bit more socially active was this minister for the homeless in Boston, who was this extroverted person whose job really was to go around and help people and talk to people on a daily basis. So Terry was definitely one of the most socially active. Well, Terry and Bishop, thank you both for joining us. Thank you for asking. Thank you. Terry Swanson is a rancher and a farmer in Baca County. Bishop Sand is an audio producer with The Washington Post. The Post's podcast, All Told, recently profiled Swanson's life during the coronavirus pandemic. When we come back, when mindfulness meets meditation, it's not necessarily about relaxing. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's a one-time-only live event, Sunday at 1 on CPR Classical. Music is so ephemeral. Cellist Yo-Yo Ma performs the complete cello suites by Bach to honor lives lost during the pandemic and pay tribute to the resilience of our communities. His two-year world tour of Bach started at Red Rocks in 2018 and returns to life in this special broadcast. Listen for Yo-Yo Ma Live Sunday at 1 o'clock. Ask your smart speaker to play CPR Classical. We've talked before about using meditation to help ease the anxiety of isolation in the pandemic. What happens when you add mindfulness to meditation? It's about getting in touch with your senses, not necessarily about relaxing. Sam Brash and May Ortega explore this concept in At a Distance, CPR's podcast about living our best lives in the age of coronavirus. Okay, I want you to try something with me really quick. Sure, like what what else am I going to do? All right, so I've been really into these free meditation classes. Oh, all right. Yeah, no. let's do it, yeah. <laughs> no, okay, but wait, hear me out, okay? Please. I, yeah, I know. Okay, like, look, I've, I've tried meditation before. It just feels weird to do it now in the middle of a pandemic. Like... Sure. I'm. It's like I'm acknowledging that I'm powerless in all of this, that there's nothing I can do, so I might as well sit on a cushion and breathe. Yeah, I can, I can get that. But this isn't a typical meditation class. The instructor is hosting these classes to help people through their COVID anxiety. So just listen to a bit of this class I took and give it a shot for a minute. Let's do this together. Okay, fine, fine. <laughs> so let's start with our breathing. Inhale deeply. Gently hold it. And exhale slowly. And I'm going to kind of increasing the hold, right? Because especially so many of us are working with this virus in our lungs, possibly. 
that this is a way to keep our lungs strong and to have a kind of an assessment of what we're experiencing in our bodies. Oh, wow. So this is like actually about the pandemic. Yeah, totally. The teacher actually thinks she had the virus for a couple weeks. Huh. Yeah. So just keep with it. Let's follow her lead. Bring yourself to the ground and like literally think about that. The earth, the ground, bring your body to the ground. And you can bring your forehead to the ground, stretch the right hand forward, stretch the left hand forward, and then inhale. And exhale right to your kidneys. You doing it, Sam? Yes, May, my forehead is on the ground. And sometimes I even like to roll my forehead along on the ground. It helps to open up the sinuses. You can even think about kind of helping to activate the third eye there and get a little clarity. So when you're ready, you can press the ground away and come and sit. And notice how you feel. So how was that? Just like that little sample that we just did. It, it was nice. I'm, I'm slightly more relaxed than I was. <laughs> That's good. I told you. Uh-huh. So this meditation teacher really helped me see that mindfulness isn't just about taking a mental break in a stressful time. And I didn't really expect that to happen. Okay. I, I think I get what you mean. I think I see that. Yeah. You, you don't have to be totally bought in, but let's talk to this teacher because I think she can really explain why mindfulness is a great way to cope with this pandemic. Okay. The woman who led that meditation class you just heard is named Jenna Delashene. She's based in New York City. And I am a contemplative-based practitioner sharing practices for trauma and recovery. Jenna says that all of us can benefit from mindfulness practices. And Sam, you said you worry meditation is about just like sitting on a cushion and breathing. Yeah, I, I did say that, yes. But, you know, when we spoke to Jenna, that's not how she understands mindfulness meditation at all. She talked about how, yes, it can mean sitting on a cushion and breathing, but it can also mean laying on your back with your feet above your head or even going for a walk. It's all about engaging parts of our body that we don't necessarily think about engaging. Right. This is what she emphasized over and over. It's not necessarily about relaxing. It's about changing the way we think about things. Exactly. The definition of mindfulness is the moment-to-moment, non-judgmental awareness of senses, images, feelings, and thoughts. Can we, especially right now, notice you know, what we're feeling in our body? Can we notice the images that come to our minds? Can we bring our awareness to what we smell, what we touch, what we feel you know, physically? Um, And it's a way to bring yourself back to the present again and again and again. And why do you think it's so important that people practice mindfulness right now? What we're all experiencing right now is a massive disconnect from each other. Like we can't see each other. We can't see our friends. We're stuck behind screens all the time, (laughs) right? So we're even more disconnected, you know, and so the way to to alleviate that is to connect, right? And once you can connect to yourself, which is actually a really beautiful thing to do regardless of a pandemic or not, um, you simply just 
you're able to connect better with others and with life. I'm somebody who's meditated in the past a little bit, but I've been sort of skeptical of trying it since then just because it doesn't feel right for me right now. Like mostly what I feel is like anger. Like I'm just furious at, um, you know, our government's response at the fact that I just can't go outside. Yeah, yeah. I totally hear you. Mm -hmm. I wonder, has your tone changed in classes as you've taught during this pandemic? So first of all, the anger is uh, your nervous system completely responding in an appropriate way to the situation, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So the way that I utilize practice is to help people understand what their nervous system is doing and why. So our nervous system is responding to the trauma of this situation. Mm -hmm. And now with all of the isolation that we're experiencing, people are becoming depressed, right? Or Mm -hmm. anger, anger can arise. And anger, I think, is a beautiful fuel. It's amazing. Um, You can really use it to be productive. Um, Okay. (laughs) Oh, no, absolutely. Just to recognize that that's a particular energetic quality that you are experiencing right now. I took one of your classes a couple weeks ago. And at the time, you mentioned that you had been sick with COVID-19 yourself. Uh, What was that period like for you? <laughs> not not fun. Um, I bet. I bet. Right. <laughs> so I, I never had a fever, and I never had trouble breathing. But I did have the GI issues. I had the aches and pains, the chills, the sweats, uh-huh. the um, the cough, the, the sore throat. Not much of a cough, and uh, I don't know why. I can attribute that to having a daily breathwork practice. I don't know. Hmm. Um, I would do practice to check in with myself. And notice what I was experiencing in my body. It doesn't sound great if you're sick. It sounds like really rough. Kind of hard, yeah. To your your body. Yeah, but but what I was doing was, I I mean, for me, um, what I was doing was tracking the virus. I could feel it moving through my body, trying to get like a foothold. Hmm. So I was watching. That was helpful? I found it incredibly helpful. I was learning it as it was learning me. I'm curious, did you ever get a test? I did a telehealth conference with a doctor from uh, NYU Langone Hospital, and uh, uh-huh. she, she's like 99.9% you have it. Okay, well, there you go. Wow. Oof. If you hadn't been so in tune with yourself, how do you think the journey of you being sick would have gone otherwise? Without practice, I mean, even with practice, let me say, it was scary and terrifying, right? Because you're just hearing stories mm-hmm. all the time about you know, healthy adults suddenly dying. And of course, you're thinking like, wow, that could be me. That could be me, right? Totally. Mm -hmm. So I would notice that I was having those thoughts, right? I would use practice to help calm myself so that I wouldn't spin out into a frenzy of fear. And then I would utilize different practices to, to not just help regulate my nervous system, but to help me feel better. As you went through this, as you likely had the disease and just saw this play out in your city... Um, with the lockdowns that continued week after week, how did your own personal mindfulness practice change, if at all? Uh, It didn't change. It got stronger. As I watched the virus move through my body, I am watching the virus move through the body of this country and of this planet. And, And that's when, you know, for me, the practice is about noticing and 
watching what's happening and then offering to other people to be of service because we're all connected. And we're seeing that now. Has there been a moment when you felt like your classes have, have really helped somebody through this difficult time? Is there a specific instance you can point to? Yeah, for sure. One person was describing how her mother was having a lot of past trauma. And she found that these practices were the first time that um, her mom was able to find calm. And, hmm. and that's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's something I've read, but also something I've felt that the, the main question isn't when this is going to be over. It's like, how do we just keep going? <laughs> yeah. Whatever that means. All of these practices are, are about building resiliency within the nervous system. You know, the, the nervous mm-hmm. system, I like to use the word hijacked. Like when your nervous system is hijacked from repeated trauma, complex trauma, this is when it can start to go into things like PTSD. Um, Hmm. you know, I think a lot of people have a misconception about meditation is like, you're not thinking anything, right. Which is Mm. pretty impossible. Um, it's the, (laughs) (laughs) what it is, is what is your relationship to your thoughts and the ability to watch them come and go. And so the, the really interesting thing, and I love what you said about, you didn't want to turn inward because you felt like you would be disconnecting, right? Yeah. So for me, the, the knowledge and the wisdom that I find when I can drop my awareness into myself allows me to better connect with the situation around me. So Sam, we spoke to Jinnah. We learned more about meditation and mindfulness and how it can help you out. So what are you thinking right now? I mean, I think like, well, I hate to admit that I'm ever wrong. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I get what she's saying, right? That mindfulness meditation is not an attempt to run away from painful thoughts or painful experiences. It's often actually an attempt to to let those feelings come and sort of like wash over you, to let them happen rather than fighting mm-hmm. them, which can often be more painful. Yeah, actually, I think that's like super accurate. You hit the target right there with that description, <laughs> right? And that's the way that I think of it too. It's more, I know the phrase like centering yourself can be mm-hmm. like kind of played out by now, but that's what it is, right? You get in touch with yourself and you give yourself time to just exist and understand that it's okay to be overwhelmed by stuff and to be worried, but that you have the capacity to still understand and give yourself a little slack, you know? Right, right. Like, it's not like we're turning away from the chaos. We're locating ourselves inside of it. Yeah, totally. That's a really good way to put it. So if this sounds like something you might want to try, here are some tips from Jinnah about how to get started. And may I can say, I I might actually be in that camp now, maybe. Woo, good. See, I'm glad that you're on board. (laughs) (laughs) So tip number one. All right. So if you're hyped up or really anxious, you don't actually have to meditate sitting down with your eyes closed. There are other ways to pay attention to your senses. If you feel like you're about to jump out of your skin, a seated meditation is not only inappropriate, but like could be harmful. You can reach into your inner toolkit and be like, today I'm experiencing this. So let me, in some cases, beat the hell out of the heavy bags (laughs) or do some breath work, you know? 
Tip number two, connect with other people. Mindfulness doesn't just mean blanking out or thinking about the beach. It also means making sure you're giving yourself the social connections that most humans need to feel okay. Yeah, so connect, connect, connect is what I would definitely recommend. Tip three, take a tech break. Being fixated on digital images with bright lights for hours at a time, it can take a toll on your vision, your brain, and your energy. So go out for a walk, breathe some fresh air, focus on those sensations. Do what you can to take a break from the screens and connect to nature. As crazy as the situation is, we're fortunate that it's spring. Mm-hmm. Number four, find the humor in things. I know that that can be really hard right now, but laughter can really be a form of therapy at this moment. So laugh with your friends, your family, maybe even by yourself. You know, we had like a Zoom party and everybody like wore different costumes. <laughs> find ways to, to laugh and be silly. Such an important part of being human. And tip five, be kind to yourself. You say this at the end of every podcast, I feel like, but remember, <laughs> you're only human and it's totally okay not to feel happy 24-7. Make sure you're not being too hard on yourself. This idea that you're supposed to be happy and find the light and everything, that's not what the practice is about. The practice is about really understanding your own experience and holding kindness for yourself, which then allows you to hold kindness for others. CPR's May Ortega and Sam Brash, hosts of At a Distance. You can hear this and all of the episodes at CPR.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us today. And thanks to our executive producer, Carl Bielek, our producers, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, and Alexandra McMahon, our production team, Michael Hughes, Shane Rumsey, and Natasha Watts. I'm Avery Lill with my co-host, Ryan Warner. You're listening to CPR News.